2: computer solitaire
0: huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over a 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com plus terms
1: website for details you are entering the royals podcast network a show that looks at Kansas City baseball's past, present, and future. Melted to left field. Billy comes through tonight. Splash. This is the Kansas City Baseball Vault.
0: And welcome into the Kansas City Baseball Vault, brought to you by Kelly's Westport Inn. We're here with with another glorious week with the ever-excitable Michael Engel. Mike, how's it going?
1: Well, the Royals are still in first place. Still in first place. Amazed, uh, in a way. Is this the first
0: back-to-back shows we've done with the Royals in first place for both shows?
1: I think so. I think it it probably (laughs) is. They were only around for like three days (laughs) last time. So
0: not only this season, but ever in the history of this show... First time with back-to-back shows in which the Royals are in first place.
1: Yeah, so, mark it down on uh, on your calendars. August 18th, yeah.
0: August 18th is the day. Um, you know, it's actually funny because I have one of those little fold-out schedules that they give away. You know, you find it near the cash register, uh-huh. or wherever. And so I, just like I did last year, I pinned it up in my uh, my office on my cube. And so I've taken to I started this at the beginning of the season. Every day, whether you know what they, whatever they did the night before, I come to work and I'll take my sharpie and I'll mark it if it's a W or an L. And I just did it. My the kind of thought in the back of my head was, "Hey, I'll do this, and then if they do turn out to make the playoffs, and maybe this is somewhere something special, then you know maybe I'll, I'll, I'll always hack and save this, whatever." Yeah, <laughs> it's been kind of funny the uh, <clears throat> the ups and downs were like, at the beginning of the season, I was like, hey, that was my thought. <clears throat> and then after the first month, I was like, okay, slow start. After the second month, I was like, well, I'm probably just going to throw this away at the end of the year. And then I'm like, wait a second, you know, maybe this will be the special. And then I'm like, the next, then another month later, and I'm like, okay, I'll probably just throw it away again. And now here we are. I'm like, man, I might frame this. <laughs> <laughs> Because the Rose Stone first, the reason I thought about it, obviously, is because you mentioned marking it down on the calendar. And the, the day, uh, okay, I can't remember the date. Obviously, I haven't marked down, but it's not in front of me. Um, but I circled it for when the Royals took over first place since they've been. So obviously, it was before we recorded the last show. Yep. Um, but anyway, I mean, let's talk about this. First place, Mike. It's been, you know, what, 10 days maybe now? I don't know how long it's been.
1: Uh, uh, it's been a week. Yeah, they won on Monday and that was uh um, That was it. Yeah, that was the day they took the half game lead and they've uh, just kind of hung around. They uh start today with a one and a half game lead, so they've made up, you know, they put a little distance between them. It looks like they're gonna actually get to play tonight at Target Field. So if the Royals win, the Tigers are off. Um, you know, if they get a win, that puts them in two games. I mean, that's a good place to be. It's it's uh you know, it's going to be all two games ahead, a whole two games. I mean, it's and it's only two games, but you can already start to feel people like looking way ahead um, towards, you know, a month and a half from now. And whew, I don't know. I don't know what to do here. I don't really know how to react to it because it's such foreign territory. The closest. I mean, in 2003, yeah, they were they were there, but, you know, they had faded so many times talent level wasn't there. Last year they had so many teams this time of year that they had to jump over just to be in the wild card. And now they're in the division and they have an opportunity to, you know, add to their lead now. And the way the schedule plays out, they I mean they're in really, really good shape as long as they play about what they should do. So it's it's I don't know what to do about that. It's really hard to like be a Royals fan and expect them to just fall apart because that's yeah, what they've it, always done. But uh, you know I don't want to get too excited because then you know you invite the heartbreak. But of course, man, I, I you yeah. know it's almost worth it just to ha- hype it up. I think. You know
0: I <clears throat> I was thinking about this on my ride home today, where it's so strange because if i was a, a baltimore orioles fan right living in baltimore baltimore was my team i would look at the royals and i'd say they're a pretty good team the royals are probably going to make the playoffs but as a kansas city royals fan living in kansas city mm-hmm. having the 29 years of history that i do <laughs> that we with this team it's one of those things where i'm not i'm not there yet i'm not I'm not betting on it. I'm not even, you know, really. It, it hasn't really sunk in how close they really are, which is the closest they've been in our lifetime, probably my lifetime at least. I should say, but um, you know, it, it it still feels like you know, oh, this is neat, kind of like a like a first place in April is what it feels like, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's you know, we're midway through August, so it's really just a kind of a weird feeling that I'm, I'm with you. I don't know. I don't necessarily know what to do, um, but I mean, if we do look ahead, just kind of like what we talked about uh, last on the last show, I mean, it, the schedule still opens up. They got through, you know, they they finished up the tough stretch, and now here we are. They can they can they win this tonight and uh, against Minnesota. That's three out of four from the Twins, which is what you should do to a team of the Twins caliber. And then was it two against Colorado? Yep. And then off day and then they go they go to Texas. Yep. Three so, against Texas. And Texas is in I mean, they're they're in a mess this year. Yeah. This, so they are a mess in trouble, been bad. And, yeah. I mean for a team that's been so consistent the last, you know, three or four years uh, and those two straight World Series a few years ago, I mean they've they've just really it's kinda caught up with them, I guess. Which yeah, is kind of weird because they, they were...
1: they've had a lot of injuries too. They've so. had a lot of
0: injuries. They had a lot last year too, I think. And it, yeah. it, it it's one. It's it's weird because they. I remember a few years ago. Um, it was looking at them like, man, that's a that's a model organization. They had they were doing great. Two straight World Series. They had a lot of talent in the pipeline. They didn't have a huge payroll. They had things under control. And then, I think it they just kind of got bit hard by the injury bug, and it's just been it's been killing them the last couple of years. And so they've kind of faded off, and they got they got rid of Josh Hamilton and things like that. So. Um, But anyway, this is not a Texas Rangers podcast. Point being, (laughs) they're not that great this year, and they're a team where we're at the point now. You can say the Royals should win. The Royals should take three or four from the Twins. We can say that and don't have to feel bad about it. Don't have to feel like we're jinxing them. That's I mean, this is what we should. This is if the Royals want to be here, then those are the expectations that people should be saying that, and then the Royals themselves should be saying it. And. They that that and that goes for the Rangers too. I mean, you they probably. <clears throat> it's always hard to call a two-game series because it's like, well, should you say you sweep the two-game series, just split whatever. But um to be honest, I would feel pretty good about just splitting with the with the Rockies going out high altitude. They haven't played there this year. I mean, just take a yeah. take one win and 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 get out of there. I'd be okay with. But then go to. Go to Texas after an off day and you know, take two out of three from them or maybe even sweep. I mean you it, it 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 sets up pretty nicely and then I mean then they get twins to, when
1: they come back to Kansas City. So I mean and, just, and if we
0: don't if we don't know what to do now, Mike, tell me what what are you gonna do if we if the next time we play Detroit, the Royals have like a four game lead.
1: Uh, it's going to be, that's going to, I just, I can't even fathom that. That's how just strange this all is. But if they, if they get that lead up to four games, I mean, the calendar becomes their friend too, because, you know, you've got Detroit. They, you know, we talked about this last time. They've still got to face the Yankees. They've still still got to face the Giants. They have to face the Rays and the Rays have been playing well. So those are good teams. And even though they do play, you know, Minnesota, I think like 10 more times, it's, you know, they still have to beat that team. You know, they still have to win and you expect them to, but Detroit's still going to lose games down the road. Now, Kansas City is too because they're they're just not going to win their next 39 or whatever games they have left. But, you know, I think it's reasonable to expect the Royals to go 24 and 15 over the next or 23 and 16 or, you know, there's there's a road to like 90-91 wins here. And it's not that far fetched at this stage, so that really works for them uh, really nicely. And so you've got team like the Tigers. You know they have to make up that ground now. So if they do get to that spot where they have a lead built up against the Tigers, that's pretty nice because you know you could even get swept. Which the way the Royals have been playing, you wouldn't expect them to. And the way the Tigers have been playing, you wouldn't expect them to sweep a team. So it really kind of helps, you know, benefit them. Plus, you're not playing where every single night is like a tightrope, and you know, one slip and and you're starting to fall. I mean, you start to build up a lead. That's it. It's it, you know, it's kind of like they got that half game lead, but a half game lead is awfully tenuous, you know. Not once <laughs> once they took it, because I mean, you simply lose and you're tied, you know. But it just happened that they lost the the game after they won after they uh, took first place, but Detroit lost too. And then, you know, from that point, you just kind of have to win more over the remainder of the schedule than Detroit. And everything else prior is the work you've already done. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I would welcome that opportunity to see what it feels like. If they can go to Detroit and and face them with a a four-game lead or or even better. And,
0: And as you said earlier, you don't want to look too far ahead. But one thing I am looking at is um, at the at the Royal schedule September nineteenth through the twenty first, three game series against Detroit here in Kansas City, last home stand of the year. They have let's see, one, two, three, four. Ten games a ten game home stand, and then they finish the season with seven on the road against Cleveland and Chicago. But they end that ten game home stand with three against Detroit. I mean. <clears throat> Has there, obviously, a lot, a lot of things can change in a month. Just ask the Rose of a month ago. But, yeah. um, I mean, has there been a series as big as that series could potentially be in our lifetimes?
1: Not not in a long time. I mean, back in 89, there were probably some series. In 2003, I'm sure there was something in about this time of year. But that late, you know, where you've got your game one fifty. Four, five, and six, or whatever it is, yeah, intense. I mean that that yeah. could be a huge way. And I guess last year it was kind of close because they faced the Rangers in that last series at, uh, in their last home stand, and the Royals were still kind of within a little bit of a striking distance. Um, but gosh, yeah, I mean if you can go and you have a shot against Detroit at home, and you can win two out of three of that. Pretty nicely. So, and I can't even imagine what the crowd would be like in that situation because... That's what's getting me excited, thinking about that. That would, that would be, I mean, we've talked about it a bunch of times on this show, you know, this is the big series of the year. Uh, that would be the big series of the year, uh, unless Kansas City somehow can just run away, which uh, isn't unheard of, I guess. Um, but they do want to take care of it then. If you're going to, you know, a month from now, you really want to take care of it there because... Tigers have the white sox and the twins afterwards the Royals you know with the the uh, they have the white sox as well, but they also have the Indians and the Indians are obviously better than the twins, so you know that's yeah. uh a key series and a key spot, and you couldn't ask for better drama uh, at least if we're looking ahead and, right. and dreaming a little bit because um, you could and
0: the thing I because mean, at that point you know both. It, behoo- it sets up well for both the Royals and the Tigers because after that series with the teams, as you mentioned, then Cleveland, Chicago, and Minnesota are all going to be mailing it in. I mean, <clears throat> that's seven games for um, both the Royals and the Tigers against those teams. Five out of seven for both is probably going to be pretty easy to attain to end the season. So they're, you know, not only does that make that series more important, but then whoever the the loser is of that series, still sets up nicely to, you know, depending on what the wild card situation is, to gain some ground there. Yeah. Because, you know, as of right now, Mike and I were talking about this before the show, <clears throat> it's crazy to think the playoffs start today, you know, not only would the Royals be in, but the Tigers would be out. They're not even the second wild card at this point because they're, a, I think it's a half game behind the Mariners. or Maybe yeah. it's a full game. I think they it might are be a full
1: game. half a game. <clears> half
0: game, finish. okay. So yeah. they're a half game behind the Mariners. Um, so assuming that those three teams, Mariners, Royals, Tigers, all kind of stick pretty close together, which I'm imagining is probably what's going to happen unless of course, like we say, the Royals run away with it, but I, I don't, know, I don't necessarily anticipate that happening. So point being you know, it, at the end of the season, whoever kind of is the loser, if you will, of that particular series and is in second place in the division it sets up pretty well for them to try and make a run at that wild card. still, if, if the Mariners are still fighting for that second spot.
1: Yeah, and it, it does. It seems like you know the Yankees have faded, the Blue Jays have faded. Uh, it really does seem like there's six teams going right now for five spots, and you know that's you know that kind of gives a little bit of leeway. It gives the Royals an opportunity to have two ways to win. Um, I just looked ahead at Seattle's schedule. The way they finish up, they play Oakland uh, six times in September. They play the Angels seven times in September. They play the Blue Jays four times. In September, so that's a pretty tough September schedule. While the Royals are playing, you know, the Twins, and well, I think they have maybe one game in September against the Twins, and but they've got a bunch of Indians and and White Sox games, and you know, just teams that they're not that afraid of. And
0: they play the White Sox seven times out of their last twelve games.
1: Yeah, and they got you know Texas at home again. They get Boston. Four games against Boston at home. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it does unfold pretty well. And that's why if you look at percentages, the Royals have like a 68% chance of the playoffs and because they could win the division. They could win the wild card. And I think if you projected them out, I think they would just fall at about 89 wins, which this year feels like it should probably win. You know, it should probably work. 89 wins, which... Uh,
0: I think uh, Detroit won the division with 88 wins a few years ago, 2012 maybe.
1: Yeah, there was some year where where you know they were just down and it, you know that's a not a stellar win total, but when you're playing divisionally and wild cards, I mean it, it'll work. I mean the the Royals wouldn't give it back <laughs> if they only won eighty eight, eighty nine games and that won the division for them. And yeah, that's twenty twenty twelve.
0: Yeah, twenty twelve the the Tigers won at eighty eight and seventy four. They won the division and yeah. went to the World Series that year. So.
1: Yeah, and the Royals could win, you know, they only need to win 21 games to get to that spot out of out of 39. If they can go 21 and 18, that's where they're at. And I think the schedule fits for them to do at least that. Yeah. Provided, you know, of course, there's no significant injuries. There. You know, pitching staff holds up. Um, I have mild concerns about Jordana Ventura and Danny Duffy because, you know, they haven't really been in a spot where they've thrown – this much um or at least by the time they get to that that middle of september you know it could be something ventura's like 17 innings off of what he threw last year um you've seen him kind of be a little outside of his regular command the last two starts duffy was his velocity looked down he looked kind of aggravated in his last start maybe that's just one blip you know i mean james shields had about a month and a half where he was really bad so uh If you can weather that storm i guess one bad not even that awful but one rough start from duffy and a couple from ventura it's not as big of a a worry but given that they're younger they don't have the track record of 200 innings you know maybe be concerned because the royals past those guys they don't have a lot of depth you got bruce chen and you've got I, I don't even know who the next guy would be. Uh outside hire, I suppose. They might have to go get somebody. Yeah. So I mean that's tough. Um I guess Liam Hendricks maybe. I mean, they kinda got him. Um I I don't know. I mean, so you, you hope those guys can hold up. And you know, there's also Guthrie has not been great. So there are concerns, and of course the offense could tank at any time. In their last 25 games, they've scored like 4.6 per game, which is well beyond their their uh, season norm. So I think that will probably fall a bit. So, you know, it just kind of depends. If, if they get league average of the way, they should be. And it's, it's almost like letting your guard down at the end of the horror movie because, yeah, you know, you think, okay, this looks like we're going to get out of this, this, this might happen. And uh, that's usually when you get blindsided. So,
0: yeah. And you know,
1: the, the thing about it
0: is, yeah, the offense has been better, like you said, well beyond what they're normally getting, but it's not like, when you really look at it. So out of this 25 game stretch, um, 11 times they've scored three runs or less. So almost half the time, they're scoring three runs or less, which is the first half season Royals that we expected. Um, but then, even when they do have some good, uh, some good offensive nights, it's it's not like they're you know like last night was twelve to six, and that was a rainy game, so that's probably contributed to some of that. But most of the time, when they're scoring a lot of these runs, it's not like they're giving up. But like when they you know six, there's a lot of six to two, four to two, you know five to nothing um those type of those type of games in there that you know seven to one um things like that so there's a lot of those games too where there's one that was 12 to two so they get 12 runs makes their offense looks better but they only needed three to win that game so you know it's something where when you really look at it it's a little bit more sustainable or the, the prospects of sustainability are a little bit more than you would you might initially think based on how this season has gone
1: That's possible. I mean, a lot of those, you know, 12-2, to to 12-6, it's just, you know, they get the one big inning, and they had that one big inning yesterday, and they had uh, that one big inning in Arizona. And, you know, the rest, it's not too crazy. The one thing the Royals really do have going for them is that their defense is so good and their starting pitching has been so good that if they do four runs a game, I mean, you've seen the record quoted on TV and on the radio so often, if they've got a really good chance of winning that game especially if you're looking at you know down the line at the teams they're playing that aren't great teams know texas really is not the scary offensive team they've been in the past so you know, that's somebody that you feel like you're probably okay with boston is right you know they're towards the bottom and runs scored and runs per game in the american league as well which is unlike them but you look at what the Royals did against them uh, when they faced them before, and, and, you know, they held. Well, I guess they got swept, didn't they? But yeah. you, So maybe that's a bad example. <laughs> but, I mean, over the, of the season, Boston hasn't been very good. And, you know, you bring them into Kansas City, and they're not really a team that's built great for Kauffman Stadium. So, I, you know, you kind of feel pretty good about their ability to continue to do things that they've done with pitching and defense. And then if they can just get something out of their offense, there you are. I mean, you look at Seattle. Seattle's built the same way the Royals are: their defense and pitching and iffy offense. So if Seattle can kind of ride it out, then you should feel pretty okay with the Royals. And the Royals have an easier schedule. So that's, I guess, that's the way I have to approach it: is just be like, okay, they have a good shot here. So yeah, and um
0: and one one of the things that we've talked about on this show that in order for the royals to get where they need to be they need to be better in one run games i can't remember exactly how bad it was at one point in the season but i mean
2: it was like rough a, you
0: know like a 2 and 9 type of thing it, it was pretty bad and now they're 17 and 21 in one run games mm-hmm. so you know still below 500 but it's corrected. It's, start, it's it's starting to correct itself. Yeah, and they're getting there to the point where I mean, if they if they finish this season, five hundred and one run games, then I gotta think that it's hard for me to believe they can finish this season five hundred and one run games and not make the playoffs from here on out. I mean, granted, yeah. it's only four games, so I guess theoretically. You could win four one-run games and then just get smoked in a lot of other ones. That's <laughs> true, and especially if the Royals, it's not necessarily out of the question. But the way this season has gone and the way they're playing, you know, that would lead me to believe that they're probably on the right track. And man, it's—I mean, they could seriously win ninety games.
1: Yeah, I had them at eighty-six when the season started, and kind of felt optimistic <laughs> with that. And now here they are—they're actually right around an average offense. You know, with this recent scoring. Kind of, you know, they had three homers yesterday. They've got, you know, some. They got like six guys with 20 doubles or more. They have now, I think, with Gordon, Perez, Mustakis, Willingham, who they've added. Um, you know, all those guys have double-digit home runs. So, I mean, they're kind of creeping up to where they're a more you know, productive than they had been on. Uh, we talked about before, I mean, Norioke is still hitting pretty well. Billy Bucking well. Alex Gordon's hitting well. Uh, Willingham has had a couple of really good hits. Uh, Escobar's been very clutch lately. Um, you know, really the guy that you're worried most about, I guess uh, two guys are Mustakas and Omar Infante. Both been pretty rough the last, well, Mustakas altered by a point and then for three and loses it. And then, you know, Infante's been really rough for the last month or so. But he's got a track record that says that he should be at least average. So if he can bounce back from that, I mean, then you're kind of looking at a team that has even if those are guys are holes, they're not huge holes. They're not the, the guys that uh, you know like Chris Getz or Jeff Francois last year, where there was no hope. You know, you at least have hope with Infante and Mustachis if nothing else, the threat of power. So I don't know, it's 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 easy to be optimistic. Up-
0: You there, Mike? Sorry, you kind of broke up there for a second. I didn't know if... Uh,
1: yeah, what, did, what was the last thing you heard?
0: Oh, just... Like I I think I heard everything And just for the last word you broke up. I didn't know if you were still there. Oh, yeah. You were still going, but... Um, yeah, it's, it, it's easy to be optimistic right now as a Royals fan, which is something that you never thought you'd hear. Um, <laughs> but with that, on an optimistic note, we're going to go to break, and then we come back on the other side. We're going to talk about something interesting that was pointed out by a few people, um, a few national sports writers on Twitter today, about everyone's favorite Alex Gordon. So stay with us. When we get back on the other side, we'll delve into that and tell you what everybody was talking about.
2: In the darkness of the night, we were-
0: The new baseball vault brought to you by Kelly's Westport Inn. That bump you heard once again was from the late night callers, the local Kansas City band. As we said last week, and as we'll continue to do, we're trying to um, get a little get a little involvement from the community here. So if you um, are in a band, or you know a band, or your friend's sister's brother's cousin has a band, or whatever in the local KC area, you want to get a little get a little bit more exposure, get a little showcase, hit us up on Twitter at Michael Engel. Or myself at the Jeff report on Twitter. We'll get you some information. We'll get you the email address. You can just email it to uh, Kent City baseball Vault at gmail.com. We'll put it on here um, as a little bumper music when we come back from the break. We'll mention Jan and we'll mention a website like we're mentioning now the, the late night callers.com um, is their website for that if you want to listen check out more of their music. So. Um, if you know anybody, go ahead and listen to us. Go visit late com website, and I'm sure on there it's got all the information that you need in terms of where you want to see them, where you wanna where you, how you can listen to them, how you can buy CDs or whatever, what what have So um <clears throat> with <laughs> with that, we'll come back. We 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 teased a little bit about Alex Gordon over the break. So or before the break. So um, what was pointed out on Twitter today, I saw uh, Rob Nyer was one of the first people to, to, that I saw pointed out. And then Jeff Passan kind of piggybacked on it and talked about it a little bit. But um, Alex, if you go to Fangraphs, we talk about Baseball Reference a lot because they were, they were a former sponsor and they're a great site. Um, but And I think we've kind of discussed this a little bit without trying to get too inside baseball, but mm-hmm. Baseball Reference and Fangraphs, the two predominant baseball statistic websites, um, both have their own... Uh, formulas that they use for wins above replacement. So um, they sometimes they get differing um, numbers, and it's just because they, they value different things. Won't get too deep into it, but anyway, if you go to Fangrass and you just look up the whole league stats, league leaders, and you look up the league leaders in WAR wins above replacement from Fangraphs.com, what do you see, Mike? Uh, Maybe you have it pulled up. I don't know. Just, just tell me what. What do you think you would see?
1: Right <laughs> well, it's not fair because I, 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 spoiler you know alert. The, I know the answer. answer. Um, but I mean, what you would see, you would see the ranking of uh, if you looked at the hitters, you would see the ranking of hitters ranked by Fangrass WAR value, and number one on the list would be Alex Gordon, the University of Nebraska, which is kind of crazy. Because you look at his uh, offensive numbers, he's not, you know, lighting the world on fire. He's having a good year. He's having a good second half. Uh, but even ahead of Mike Trout. Mike Trout, you know, the darling of the internet the last two years and, you know, should have been the MVP, in my opinion, each of the last two years. And there's Alex Gordon with more wins above replacement than Mike Trout. So, which is pretty surprising. I mean, you could look at Alex Gordon and be like, okay, he's having a good year. He's been a good player but this is the extent to which he's been a good player you know you can see a measurement that you know shows what he's done over the course of the year and how he ranks against everybody else and it's better than everybody else as of uh, at least when we everybody checked this afternoon so that's pretty interesting and i think most people would be very surprised to see that as the case especially with you know Mike Trout's past couple seasons and you know, just the way these guys are covered you know i i don't even know how many people even though he was a, a number two overall pick you know how many casual baseball fans would recognize alex gordon that easily uh, not nearly as many as would recognize mike trout
0: yeah i mean if you were to just just to go through this top we'll look at this top 15 these are this is all baseball by the way not just the, the american league so after alex gordon Mike Trout, Giancarlo Stanton, Josh Donaldson, Robinson Cano, Michael Brantley, Andrew McCutcheon, Yase Puig, Jonathan LaCroix, Kyle Steiger, Carlos Gomez, Ben Zobris, Jason Hayward, Jose Bautista, and Anthony Rendon round out the top fifteen. I mean, if you if you charge someone on the street and said, Hey, make give give me a list of your top ten players in baseball, offensive players in baseball, you know, they would name probably it would come from that list most likely, from those 14 players. But I could almost I would if I'm not betting on the Royals to make the playoffs at this point, like I said earlier, I would bet on the fact that if you just asked a random person who would, who are the top 10 offensive players in baseball, I would bet not a one would put Alex Gordon on that list. we'll say outside the Kansas City area because they're, well, unless outside the Kansas City area, and not including Kevin Scoby right? That's, that's unfair. <laughs> but, um, and it—I mean, I, I just like it's—it's it's really it kind of puts into perspective how good Alex Gordon has been and how important he is to this team.
1: Yeah, and you know the way that they calculate it, and the way uh, FanGraphs and Baseball Reference both use at least the same components. It's trying to quantify what they've done. Offensively, as a hitter, what they've done uh, as a base runner and what they've done defensively to round into one, you know, it's, it accumulates into one number basically to show, okay, this is their contribution. And Gordon is so solid defensively that that does give him a lot of value. That's how you can look at their slash lines and their, you know, trout out slugs him by like 100 some points and gets on base 25, you know, by like 25 more points and has a lot more homers and a lot more steals. But you look at Alex Gordon and, you know, he's a good base runner outside of stolen bases. Uh, It's it's probably one of the smartest players on the team in regard to running the bases. And he's fantastic defensively. He's uh, you easily the best left fielder in baseball. So you add that up, and it does end up adding up better than Mike Trout. Now, if I were drafting a team today and could pick one player out of the list you, you rattle off, I mean, I, it would be Mike Trout, but without question. But it does underscore, you know, you see so many people uh, look at home runs and everything else, and there are other ways to really add a lot of value. And this Royals team is a good example of that, too. If you look at things like even on baseball reference, the uh, defensive value uh, wins above replacement by defenders for the top 10 in the American League are Royals. So that really matters a lot when you're looking at it because you do have to calculate, OK, well, their defense has value, too. And so when you look at a guy even further, you know, I don't think we've meant to go down this rabbit hole, but hey, I'm going. Um, Go there. Just go. You look at like Billy Butler, who in the years past has been a full-time DH. You look at his wins of replacement. He's two, two and a half, even when he has really good years at the plate because he's not out there adding value from defensive plays. And he doesn't get that side counted to him. And so it ends up being – this thing where it looks like, okay, well, he's just average, but he simply doesn't accumulate it. To an extent, you know, uh, war is kind of weird because you can just kind of count it up uh, in some cases. But it's still, you know, if a guy's healthy enough to play 160 games and he's able to produce over the course of it to build it up, then, you know, I think that kind of works. So uh, to see Alex Gordon do that and get all those components working together, it's it shows how... how well-rounded he is as a player and you know it's pretty much what you expected out of him uh to some extent when the royals drafted him second overall so many years ago and you know when he he made that vaunted debut in 2007 to a standing ovation and you know, local boy and and all this other stuff i mean that's kind of what the royals expected it's just in a little different way because he's not a 30 home run guy but he's just an elite defender in left field And that adds so much value over the course of the season that, you know, it it puts him in a position here where he's ranked among the top 10 uh, position players in baseball. So, testament to him.
0: Yeah. And to kind of illustrate some of this difference that we were talking about, um, I pulled up baseball reference. And the um, Alex Gordon has. Is a 5.7 war, as, as we said, in, in fan graphs, but in baseball reference, he has a 5.0 war, which takes him from the number one spot on fan graphs down to the number 10 spot on baseball reference. What a bum. So, exactly, which is, it's kind of weird because if just to, to give the top 10 war position players, um, you have Josh Donaldson, number one, Giancarlo Stanton, Mike Trout, three, Troy Tulawitzki, Jason Hayward, Robinson Cano, Adrian Beltre, Jonathan McCroy, Kyle Seeger, and then Alex Gordon. So it's interesting because the list is nearly identical. Um, There's Michael Brantley and Yasiel Puig were in uh, the Fangraphs top ten, and they weren't in the baseball reference top ten. But of the ones in the baseball reference top ten, the the biggest – movers are let's see, Jason Hayward and um Alex Gordon is the biggest difference in terms of the gap between where they're they're ranked in one or the other, which, you know, doesn't mean much because either either way he's in it the league category. Yeah. Yeah. But it does illustrate some of the differences between it and how, you know, how much the difference lies in the defensive aspect, which is where Gordon provides so much of his value. But all the same um i think both of them illustrate that regardless of you know where he actually ranks you know i do think he is legitimately in the discussion for one of the top 10 players in baseball from all from an all around standpoint and it's really kind of weird to think about it that way cuz I, I try and, I, I find myself catching myself when i say that because
1: yeah, we we it's saw that, wait wait really it, you have to like verify it with yourself you're like am, yeah. I, am I saying that just because I'm a Royals fan and we get to see him every day do these things or you know is it for real and you look at the numbers and the numbers that's what they're there for in a lot of ways is to kind of stand there as objective you know numerical reasoning to say okay this is where it is. And this stands against whatever bias you might have. Because, I mean, I, you know, obviously, I'm a Royals fan. I'm going to lean towards a Royals player most of the time if, you know, all things being equal otherwise. So, you know, that at least it's like, okay, is he really? Look at the numbers. Yeah, that, that backs up what I said. And I'm not saying it just because he's a Royals player. It's because he is a really good player. So I think that... You know, I think both both things can be true, but I, I do understand why you would kind of catch yourself.
0: Yeah, because and especially because you know, we saw. I mean, narratives they we've talked about them a lot on this show. They they kind of die hard, and beyond that, just you know, Royals fans we expect the worst. We've seen the worst. We know what that is, but it's just you know we saw. Alex Gordon at his worst, you know, 2009, 2010, you know, those were difficult times, difficult years for Alex Gordon. So it's, it's really amazing when you think about it, seeing, you know, just five years ago, what he was and what he is now. I mean, we were talking a bust five years ago, I mean, before the 2011 season, I said, trade him. He's still got some, some minuscule value, you know, the, and just trade him, get what you can for him, and move on. You know, because that's where I, It seemed like that. there was nothing that we were going to get mm-hmm. from this second overall draft pick, and now here we are having a discussion about him legitimately being a top ten player in baseball. And regardless of whether he's in the top ten or not, he's an elite player, an elite outfielder. Who, I mean, most likely you're going to be seeing his number up on the on the Royals Hall of Fame you know, however many years from now after he retires. And yep. it's it's really quite impressive. It's a testament to the hard work that Alex Gordon has put in. And yeah. it is, it's, you know, this, and you wonder why you, we've, we've ragged on the organization repeatedly for hanging on to guys like Hochaver in the starting role and guys like Mitch Meyer and Chris Getz and all that. And, you know, unfortunately, I say unfortunately, but, when you have a situation like Alex Gordon, where someone like me is saying just cut bait and move on, and they stick with him and he turns into a superstar, well, you know, <laughs> then it's kind of like, well, wait a second, you know, maybe we should try and get rid of Moose, but you know, it took Gordo, you know, three or four years before he really stepped into that major role of of being a star. So maybe we should give Moose more time, you know. And it's that's not necessarily the right logic, but I can definitely see where. If you're dating more, you can fall into that trap because you can be like, Man, Alex Gordon is so good. If we were to give up, if we gave up on him and he was doing this in Baltimore, or LA or somewhere else, we'd be killing ourselves. Do we want to be do we want do we want that situation with Mike Mustakis? You know, so I can at least see from that standpoint. But, you know, either way, it's 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 just it's mind blowing to think about how far he's come. And like I said, it's a testament to him and and on some level it's a testament to the organization for having the patience to stick with him.
1: Well, he was. I mean, if you look at his first two years, his his rookie year was pretty rough. But his second half of his rookie year, he was okay. And then his sophomore year. 2008 was good. 2008, he was pretty good. And over the course of both of those, he was at least average. And and that's where, like, the – because I've seen this on different blogs and different, you know, not just Royals blogs but, like, other – you know, even like fan or fantasy baseball blogs or whatever, you know, where they bring up, oh, well, Alex Gordon struggled early. Well, OK, but his first two years, he was basically pretty average and, you know, average isn't good, but it's not bad. It's it's average. That's what it is. Mustakas hasn't been that. So, I, you know, I, I would say that uh, Gordon's path applies a little better to Hosmer, who's had good years, had bad years and you know balanced out he's pretty average over the course of that but (laughs) still you know he does have that that opportunity where okay he could you know it could just turn on one year Mustakas, i don't think you kind of have that i think he's pretty much where he is but i I know that's not like the point you're trying to make that Mustakas could do it but it it is something that that dayton can point to and be like hey you know look at this this is how it worked out but at yeah, the same Tam sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, sorry. Right. <laughs> but uh I mean Alex Gordon does work his ass off. He is like the hardest working player on the team. He's you just just look up Alex Gordon workout video <sighs> and I don't want to. Uh, you prompt my dreams. Guess, you'll never guess who pointed me to that in the first <laughs> place.
0: <laughs> I think I might have one guess. Maybe yeah, I might have been mentioned already in the
1: show. Right, um, but he's basically it's just like ten minutes of him just working out, just doing every single exercise you can imagine, and that's what he does. He just that's he works out incessantly, and I don't think he eats any junk food. He's just ridiculously healthy. Um, but, and that's another thing with Gordon. 2009, 2010, he was very much uh, kind of limited by injuries and things like that. So, um, but he did, he did come back from it. I mean, they were nagging injuries, and he's been pretty injury-free since. And, uh, you know, it's really shown. And he took to the transition to the outfield really quickly. And uh, I think there was something in an article today that uh, Rusty Koontz, who's the outfield coach, uh, has said that anymore he doesn't have to really coach left field you know he just has to worry about center and right because Gordon's that big of a student of the game and and does everything else right so uh, you know he's he's worked really worked really hard i think it was 2 years ago or so or a year and a half i wrote a thing on Kings of Kaufman just kind of looking at like peak years by wins above replacement and if you look at like 3 year periods um it's basically you know George Brett from like 76 to you know, 85 and it's just like different three year periods where he's like the man, but Willie Wilson had a couple of periods, but the other guy who kind of pops up in in calculating those is Alex Gordon, you know, where he's got three good years in a row where he's just got this really good measurement of uh, wins above replacement and he's doing it again. So, um, I think that kind of puts him in good company. Um, they're both Royals hall of famers and (laughs) Brett obviously is in the, uh, National Baseball Hall of Fame, yes. so not A that Gordon's gonna, Hall of Fame. yeah, not that Gordon's gonna end up there. I don't think he's gonna end up being that good um, yeah. when it all comes down. But uh, I think Royals Hall of Famer for sure. That came up on Twitter today, and there was some hesitation by some people. But I mean, Gordon's top ten in so many categories already, and he's still got two seasons left on his contract, plus the rest of this one, and he's already ninth in in wins above replacement uh, in the entire franchise. You know and that's pitchers and position players so i think he's going to be one of those guys really special when it's all said and done um and he's already pretty special so
0: yeah and and, i mean he could be and be one of the guys that ends his career at least you know as a royal with eh, he probably can't get to well we'll see depending on how long he stays here. But if he were to stay with the Royals his whole career, you know, he could be like a two thousand hit, two hundred plus home run guy. Where yeah. I mean, that's gonna put him in like you said, I mean he's already in the top ten in a lot of categories and I'd be would not be shocked if he stays as a Royal his entire career, if he ends up top ten in basically every category offensive. But um, yeah. one of the things that just to the Mustaka's um, and one of the things that I think is kind of the catch there is Mustakas has definitely been worse than Gordon was early on. Yeah. But I think the difference is, uh, or I guess not really the difference, but the reason why it's an easy trap to fall into is because the perception of Gordon was so bad because the, the mm-hmm. pressure on him was as big as the pressure on Moose and Haas and probably even bigger because at least when Moose and Oz came up, Gordon and Butler were already here and established. When Gordon and Butler came up,
1: no, they, they, they were going to be the barren. saviors.
0: Yeah, they were the saviors, and it was a barren landscape, wasteland mm-hmm. of washed up nothingness of talent. And, <laughs> I mean, that was the literally the darkest period in Royals' history. Was you know right before they they came up from 2004 to 2006, they lost 100 plus games each year. 2000. Um, was it two thousand five? Was was the year they lost one hundred and six games, wasn't it? Yeah. Was that the nine, nineteen games in a row. I mean, that was yeah. That was about as bad as it gets.
1: Yeah,
0: and um, yeah. as bad as it gets. Okay, totally. hey, Um And so then you know Gordon and and Butler come up and they're supposed to be the saviors, and they both kind of had their issues at first, and then they finally get established. But um, so I think that perception of how bad Gordon was, which part of it coming from there was the high expectations were just so yeah. high and impossible to live up to, you know, right from the start. You know, we, we talk about sometimes there, are, um, you know, the, 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 casual fan, if you will, that, that, you know, sees something once and then kind of extrapolates that to a, to a player's ability when it's <laughs> like, like Justin oh, Maxwell. <laughs> yeah, like Justin <laughs> Maxwell, hits a grand slam walk off home run and he's the greatest thing ever. He's not going to do that every time up. Well, it was a similar kind of deal, you know, it's opening day, Alex Gordon, I remember the bases, I wasn't there, but, you know, I definitely remember, you know, hearing about it and everything, bases are loaded, he gets a standing ovation, it's going to be the big deal, and then he just whiffs and strikes out, and, I mean, you'd like to think that a, um, that type of a moment doesn't have that much of an impact on a 22-year-old player, in the professional, you know, someone with, with as good a pedigree as Gordon had, but, I wouldn't be surprised if it did a little bit. It took him a little to recover, and then, as you said, you know, his second half of his rookie year was pretty good. But um, I think that just you, you take that first event and people's first, very, very legitimately first impression of him, and then plus some, some struggles and having to switch positions and all that, just the 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 what people think were bad. Oh yeah, and what people think were his first years were, were really bad. weren't as bad as people think, but. Well, and, and that that, applies... that allows that allows people, and unfortunately, I think might allow the front office to say, "Well, as bad as Mustakas has been, Gordon was bad too," and they don't really look at it and say, "Well, Gordon wasn't as bad as we think." So, unfortunately, that's why I call it a trap because it's easy to fall into that where you can just kind of kind of point to it and say, "Well, it was it was that long ago, you know, it, it didn't really." It looked bad. People think it was bad, so they'll agree with us when we. So they say it was bad.
1: Yeah, and there are a couple other examples of that, and it's not you know necessarily like over the course of a career, but I mean you look at Kelvin Herrera last year in April, where he had that really rough stretch where he gave up a bunch of homers. Well, any time he runs into any kind of trouble, which has been very rare uh, in the last like three months people on Twitter and Facebook start freaking out. Like he does this all the time and he doesn't, but it's so colored by that initial impression. It just sticks. You know, it's that, 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 uh, you know, that first thing they can think of that they see and it just hangs there. Another example, and I was talking to someone today, he he was talking uh, to me on Twitter about William Hamm versus Butler. And, um, you know, maybe which one to bring back next year. If you could sign one, well, He brought up the point that uh, he was trying to make that, okay, well, Butler's been healthy, but he really hasn't been hitting. Well, if you look at Butler and you look at him from his low point batting average, uh, I think it was like April 15th, he was batting 143. Since that point, he's hit 295. I mean, he's gotten on base about like 340 or something like that, which is lower. And his, his slugging's down too, obviously. But he's been fairly about the same player he's always been other than that, you know, first 12 games of his season. And it's so just burned in because he was so rough that first two weeks, that first month that that's what people think all year is that, Oh, Billy Butler has been, been bad when really he's been hitting, you know, he was hitting in June. He hit in July, he's been hitting in August. It's um, but they're so stuck on what they see initially.
0: He was even hitting in May. I mean, I just pulled it up as you were talking about it. The splits he hit 224 in March and April for 26 games, which is bad. But then you look, he hit 282 in May, 313 in June, 256 in July. Kind of another bit of a slump. He's hitting 349 in August. The, the the second half of this year, he's hitting 305. So I mean, it's and the the narratives kind of we we. Like I said, we talk about it a lot on this show. They, they just – and I've had this theory where um, in baseball, we talk about the first 40 games. Is that legit? We had a big, big, big show earlier in the season where we talked about sample size and 40 games being that cutoff and all that. But first 40 games for baseball. And then if you look at football, it's the first four games. And whatever a player does in those games establishes the narrative for the rest of the season. If you're, if, if most All Stars and even Pro Bowlers in football, which is even different because it's at the end of the season, but, um, you know, it, really, if you look at it, you know, some of them are going to be good, obviously, and going to be good the whole year. But some of them get there and you say, well, how did that person get there? And it's like, well, because. Most people who don't pay as much attention and just kind of the casual fan, which is nothing wrong with that, but those people they'd say, "Oh man, you know, so-and-so had a really good start to the season, and so you just don't really investigate that much, and just, okay, we're going to vote him into the All-Star game or whatever." And it, it goes both ways. So Billy Butler has a bad first 40 games, and what he's done in the 100 games since doesn't seem to matter.
1: Yeah, you can run into the. Uh, I mean, you can't escape those stats once you put them up. You know, that bad April, you can't get around it. But, you know, once it's done, it's done. You know, so it doesn't say, okay, well, he hit 224 in April. Well, that doesn't mean he's a 224 hitter. That means he hit 224 in April. But even though, even if he hits 350 the rest of the way, you know, he's not going to hit it that next point. It's kind of like when you talk about regression and it's like, you know, let's say uh, let's say that Jeremy Guthrie for his first ten starts uh, stranded eighty percent of base runners. Um, league average is about seventy percent. Well, it would be wrong to say that. Well, because the average is seventy percent, he's going to perform poorly to uh, end up uh, correcting to make it. At the end of the year, average out to seventy percent
0: yeah that he'd be sixty percent the rest of the way
1: right it's it's just that from that point he's more likely to be a seventy percent strand rate than the rest. He still gets to bank the performance that he had earlier in the year, and his numbers might look better because of it, but there was still you know some of that luck noise at the at the early start and and that's kind of the way it works here with with Butler and with you know Gordon's early stats and things like that. Um, there's, um, I don't, I'm not going to, I'll be paraphrasing this kind of line, but there's a guy, Ron Chandler, he does a lot of fantasy and roto baseball kind of stuff. And he's one of the guys I read early on when I was kind of figuring out stats and advanced stats and things like that. And one of the principles was that, um, a player who starts out hot and has a bad second half, uh, most people aren't going to notice the second half. A player who starts with a really bad first half isn't going to play the second half, and so you can get by with the same. You could have a guy hit 200 over the course of three months, but if it's in the second half after he'd hit 300, no one's going to notice, you know. But if you start at 200, you're going to notice, and uh, I think that that comes into play in all of these kind of cases where whatever happens up front, you can't escape it. Um, it's always going to be a part of what your numbers are for that season, and uh, that's why it's important to look at sample size and regression and track record and what a player's done before and you know all that stuff and kind of look at that whole picture before really you know going crazy. Um, yeah, and it's and losing it.
0: And just to, um, I feel like we talk about Butler a lot on this show, but he seems to be hot. <laughs> Uh, uh, He's a lightning rod issue, yeah, lightning rod. But it's really kind of staggering if you look at you now. The second half is is quite a bit smaller sample size, and this uh, I'm pulling this from FanGraphs because they they split it. Um, they do their splits, and they actually break it. They don't go 81 games first half of the season. They split it by the All Star break, so the second half of the season is only like 30 games according to this. The way they they break it out, but um. Which fits into that small sample size category, but it's it's quite amazing though the difference already that you can see with Butler just some of the stats like his iso percentage, which I think we've talked about it before on the show, but if not, iso is basically just um your slugging percentage um minus your um is it batting average right no what is it
1: uh, it's slugging minus batting average um or the other way that we describe it was uh total bases minus base hits yes.
0: And so, then divided um, by
1: uh, at bats. So. Yes.
0: So um, his ISO in the first half was 0.082, which is not very good. You know, normally ISO is not going to be very high, regardless. But that's still not very good. Uh, but his um, his ISO in the second half of the season is already 181. So that's a hundred points higher. Yeah, that's pretty good. And his OPS overall. Um, Was 679 the first half, it's 822 this half. So it's almost 150 points higher. Again, small sample size, caveat, all that. But, you know, all the same, it is showing that he's had quite a bit of improvement there. And then, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't just go to, you know, first half, second half. You look at March, April, he's got a 540 OPS, 697 in May. Those two months, not very good. Below 700 is, is subpar. But then, you know, three months since, he had 811, 689, 893 now in August. So definitely picked it up. And so hey, we, we this is kind of a tangent, but that's what we do on this show.
1: It's totally a tangent. So, <laughs> I was just thinking a second ago. I was like, how do we start talking here?
0: I don't even know. Oh, yeah, Alex, Alex Gordon.
1: From. Yeah, all right.
0: I know we started Alex Gordon, but how we got to Billy, it always seems to come. Billy Butler is like the new Kit pillow
1: it's just, it's <laughs> Somehow it always ends on Billy Butler. It always does, um, but I, he's he's always going to be uh, underappreciated, he's an, he's an, I think, by a lot of casual fans.
0: Yeah, and he's an important topic just because it's Billy Butler is like the poster child for um, you know, and I don't want to say I don't want to say this trying to try and sound like I'm some elitist whatever, but you know, for when we you know. As podcasters and bloggers and people who spend an inordinate amount of time,
1: a ridiculous researching of time.
0: baseball stats, and <laughs> talking about baseball and watching baseball games and stuff like that, um, you know, versus the casual fan. Who again, there's nothing wrong with the casual fan, but you know, a lot of times they don't spend as much time as we do. And so when it, Billy Butler is the poster child of when we try and get our point across. Of saying, you know, talking about these narratives and things that are different, that are different from the reality, which is narrative. Billy Butler sucks. He's fat, lazy, and he can't run, and he stinks. Versus, well, he may not be in the best shape and the fastest guy, but he provides some value to this team. So it's feel like that's a lot lot of reason why, because there's there's very few examples of people that are that are better suited to explain that.
1: Yeah, it's pretty much like Facebook hates him. (laughs) They just just just, hate him. God, awful hates him. And you'll still get you know some some of that from Twitter too. But yeah, I mean, and some of the critiques are valid. I mean, he's not fast. He's not super athletic. But I would almost say if you put him up against an average guy on the street, he's going to outrun him, frankly, because he's a professional athlete. You know, he wouldn't be able to be in this position where he is day in and day out able able to go out and and play every day, even if it's just hitting, and and you know his body still has to hold up over that, you know, and he still has to do all the other work to to be in that kind of condition, and uh, other people aren't doing that off the street in a lot of cases.
0: Yeah, I'd be curious myself to see, um, you know, a Billy Butler workout video, you know, assuming he keeps his shirt on. But <laughs> point being, I, I think that, you know, Billy Butler, his build, he looks like, oh, he might be, you know, oh, he's just fat, you know, but point being,
1: it you is know, build, if, if you I want mean.
0: to talk, yeah, if you want to talk about an Alex Gordon video and how much he, you know, works out and how strong he is, you know, I bet if Billy Butler put out a workout, <laughs> you know, similar workout video. <laughs> this is i'm going nowhere with
1: this. i'm
0: i'm really struggling i'm just
1: imagining it is what I if doing. there was a
0: youtube video
1: just showing
0: it work out like i bet most people would be like holy crap yeah you know, like he's a really strong guy yeah and his build just doesn't show it and so it's easy to look at him and say you know like oh he's just out of shape blah 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 all this yeah. and that you know and you know, whatever the case may be, but... It, <laughs> well,
1: if you're comparing him to Alex Gordon and judging on, on what kind of shape, that's just like everyone's losing that competition.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've got... When you've got Alex Gordon and his direct competition for, you know, defensive playing time is is Eric Hosmer, and that's the closest uh, comparison that people will make. I mean, Hosmer's another guy that is pretty, you know, pretty put together from that standpoint. So it, it's one of those things where... He's gonna look bad, like compared to those guys. But, like you said, compared to the average guy on the street, he—you probably—if you just saw him and you didn't know—and he just walked by—you'd be like, "I'm not messing with that dude," you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean honestly, honestly, he's not like that big. Like you would—you would think that he's gonna be this like wide, you know, big ambling dude, but he's really not. I mean, I've seen him in person a couple of times. He's just not. I mean,
0: no, just, he just—he does not look good in a baseball uniform.
1: No, and that's
0: been, that's been held against him unfortunately yep. and, uh, and another thing and we can we can maybe wrap up with this topic. but while we're on Billy Butler, one of the things that has been kind of interesting that has started to, to catch a little steam is his defense at first base yep. you know it, at, at first and I think we, we kind of touched on this in a previous show, but you know at first there was the big he missed the pop-up that let the A's have the big 5 6 running whatever it was 8 running i think
1: 8 running yeah so <laughs> um
0: and so that was a, a huge mistake and he has to you know he has to own that but at the same time since then and even you know before then like he's been pretty pretty darn good at first base you know yeah. there's there's nothing spectacular that jumps out at you but you know we talked about defensive value um previous earlier in the show you can't have a negative defensive value if that if you're that bad. And I haven't looked at the numbers. I should probably pull it up while I'm here. But um, I don't necessarily know that I see him as someone who's really going to provide a negative value so much as um, just be average, you know, just kind of a, a zero more or less. And I don't know, maybe even at this point, maybe even a little bit more just because he's he's actually been quite a surprise for
1: me. I mean, is he – he, Has he tickled your fancy
2: at at the first base position?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I, I think he's done fine. And I think when we've seen him in the past, he's been able to do just fine as well. I think it just, you know, you assume that he can't play it because, well, you know, when they, he came up through the minors as a third baseman and, you know he wasn't gonna play third they knew he wasn't gonna play third and then they put him in left field for a while and he was he's not gonna play left field um, so that pretty much left first base but the thing about first base is that is the lowest defensive spot on the totem pole i mean it just is it's important i mean they're all important positions but prioritizing uh you know by what skill sets you need every other position is much more in demand of you know good defensive abilities, um, but for what he needs to do at first base, he does it he's got good hands uh he can make the pick you know he's done that a couple times, and I think there were there was some concern about that because Hosmer you know does cover the scoop pretty well, and I think that's I think he'd led the league in scoops last season as he won his golden glove, and that was probably part of a concern with butler and part of the idea was that okay well. Moustakas, if he has a, a 50-50 play where he can either eat the ball or throw it, he might throw it at Hosmer, and they can get the out. Or he might not throw it at Butler, and that guy's getting a single. Or if he does try to throw it, it gets past Butler, turns into a guy on second, and they don't get the out because there's he missed the pick. That hasn't really happened. I haven't seen a single play like that uh, since you know Butler's been at first base. Uh, he had the drop pop up. I, I, there's probably another spot where he might not have gotten a ball that Hosmer would have. But for the most part, he's held it down. And I think when you look at other first baseman guys like uh, you know, Nate Fryman of the A's, who's like six foot nine, you know, just a big lumbering ox of a guy. And David Ortiz will play there every now and then. And Adam Dunn has played at first. And Paul Konerko, who's about 70 years old, has played over there. And Todd Helton would play there in his late 30s. And he's been... You know, injured forty different times. I'm exaggerating, obviously, but you know, th- these are guys who can play first base. I, Helton's probably a bad example because he was pretty good, but he was injured a lot of the time, and that's going to limit you. So, well, eh, sorry, go ahead. No, go talk. ahead. I'll just to put things into perspective.
0: We've talked about how good Alex Gordon is on as, from a defensive standpoint. So, I pulled up some Baseball Reference stats here, and looking at his defensive WAR value, which they do. Break it out, you know, from offense, defense, um, on the baseball reference page. So Alex Gordon is a 1.9 defensive WAR value, right, which is pretty good. So um, that is to put into perspective how maybe the one of the most elite players at his position, what their score is. And then you look at Eric Hosmer, and last year as a Gold Glove winner at first base. To illustrate how low on the totem pole, as Mike said, that it is, his defensive war value was negative .5 last year. So as a gold-glove first baseman, genuinely considered one of the best first basemen in the league from a defensive standpoint, he had a negative defensive war value. And you look at James Loney, another respected—he plays first base for Tampa. He's another respected— um, first baseman and from a defensive standpoint and this year he's a negative .7 value so Billy Butler has a negative 1.1 right now which it's a very small sample size so most likely the more that he plays and the more that he plays well that will decrease um, but I mean, this is the lowest he's had his entire career from a first base standpoint so you know, he's the again, the narrative was kinda just that he has no defensive value and it's not not is not necessarily my kind of went over his history of being shifted around and I think they just kinda gave up on him. But he yeah. didn't get he didn't give up and he has worked hard to try and be a defensive player that can add some value and I think he's proving
1: that he can be an adequate first baseman. Yeah, I think he can definitely do it. He never really had the opportunity when they you know they they started moving him to first. Well, they got Mike Jacobs and then they got Keila Kaihui. and you know they put those guys at first most of the time and had Butler DH. And you know I, I I don't know how much it really is that okay he's hitting well as he's playing first, but you know if you see interviews from him, he'll say that it does get him more in tune with the game and also that it takes some pressure off him at the plate because. Now he's not contributing only with his four or five at bats. Now he's got plays on the infield that he can make and uh, that kind of helps him take the pressure off of those at bats later on. So, you know, it's, it's just a reminder that these guys are, are humans and they're not robots who just accumulate stats. I mean, it does put him in a position where he can do something else. And, uh, you know, maybe it do- it has helped him. I mean, it, I, I, I think he probably believes that and there's probably some element of truth to it so it's it's interesting then to see what happens when Hosmer comes back right now he's still going to go back and get another x-ray I guess and see but he's probably a week to 10 days from doing any kind of swinging still and you know by that point you're at the end of the month and then he's still got to get back on track and you know, who knows he wasn't exactly tearing the cover off the ball when he got hurt either so it's yeah it's not like they need to rush him back you know they i think they've won 20 out of 26 games since he got hurt so um you know i think it shows that he's i mean i i think long term yeah he's still a big part but they haven't been affected by the injury nearly as much as i expected them to and so i think butler's play really gives them some flexibility to try to you know, let him get a full recovery instead of rushing him back and saying, hey, you're 85%, you're good to go. You know, Butler gives him a little cushion, and Josh Willingham as well, who's um, already got like four extra base hits out of his five as a Royal. So, um, you know, that kind of covers that spot, that first base DH spot between those two, and Osmer can take his time getting better.
0: Yeah, uh, so I mean, Billy, Billy Butler is is as much maligned as he was early in the season has kind of given them a little bit of a lifeline here by playing adequate first base, picking up his offensive statistics, and as you just said, giving him a little cushion for when Hosmer comes back so that they don't have to rush him and they can make sure he's a hundred percent. And with that, I think I think we'll we'll end the show today, and we'll leave you the the Royals are uh, I think as we've. We've started this show on August eighteenth. We're recording. Um, they just they've started. I, don't, I didn't I haven't gotten any notification about a rain delay. Have they started yet? Uh yeah,
1: they're yes, in Yes they the, have. They're in the fourth inning. Now, they're in so. the fourth. Uh, there um, was some rain falling, but they haven't shown the tarp on the T V, so they may not be worried about it. I don't know.
0: Yeah, and they're all tied up. But if they if they end up winning tonight, which you'll know by the time you listen to this if they do or not, then that will give them a full two game lead over the Detroit Tigers, as we mentioned earlier in the show. So, man, <laughs> this is this is something else. What's happening with this team? Uh, but yeah, with that we'll leave you. So, um, hopefully, when we come back, be, this will be there's more positivity and more more playoff talk when we come back next week. But uh, for Michael Ingle and myself, Jeff Hur. Thanks for listening. This has been the Kansas City Baseball Vault brought to you by Kelly's Westport Inn. And as always, go Royals.
1: You have been listening to a Royals Podcast
2: Network presentation.